All right, welcome back to another exciting episode of Finding Peaks. <laughs> I am jo joined here again, as, as we've been doing, uh, with friend and colleague Jason Friesma, uh, Chief Clinical Officer for Peaks Recovery, and uh, Clinton Nicholson, yeah. Chief Operating Officer for Peaks Recovery Center. So, so grateful to have you guys continuing to follow us, uh, to join us uh, for this uh, uh, new episode. And hopefully the episodes are building up and becoming meaningful for you and your loved ones and uh, helping you expand on conversations uh, in your own household and so forth. And you know, educating and giving insights into the recovery journey and you know, really what it takes to get somebody well at the end of the day. And um, Peaks is working on a mission or a project um, that sort of narrows the focus of addiction treatment through the lens of stabilization. Um, but before we begin defining terms like stabilization and what it means, um, we wanted to sort of narrow in and focus on what residential treatment is like, the tension we experience as a staff within it, and how we move towards you know, engaging individuals within um, early concepts of recovery. Uh, when you survey the vast arena of addiction treatment spaces, you'll find on all of our websites that we're talking about things you know, where we work to resolve trauma, or we work to resolve addiction, or we um, use DBT, or you know, uh, Buddhist mindfulness-based you know, practices to engage individuals in recovery. And though we speak broadly about these things within website infrastructure, um, there's a much more sophisticated and narrow approach that we kind of want to tune in and focus on today. So, um, you know, with that, it's my experience at, you know, peaks that especially when individuals are leaving that, uh, the detox episode, sort of like this grandiose experience of they are everywhere but at our treatment center. They're out in the future opportunity or they could be doing this, they could be doing that. Um, but it seems to take them out of the present and remove the focus away from internal recovery and sort of starts to externalize the process. And um, I think one of the ways that we go about treating that is kind of through this lens of mindfulness and kind of just wanted to open up the discussion to um, you two as the trained clinical staff who's constantly engaged with this about what do we mean by a mindfulness-based approach to care and why is it so important in that early part of a recovery uh, journey? And I, I, I always start with Jason. <laughs> right. You always do. You're so the I'm, friend and colleague, though. I'm just the CEO. I think the viewers yeah. are really depending on you to kick this off at oh, this point. Absolutely, oh. yeah. <laughs> to, to go with tradition. Yeah. yeah. So the question was, what is mindfulness, or how do we approach that? I, I, why, is it such a, why is it such an important tool in early recovery when we think about engaging them and getting them focused on their internal selves um, in the early part of the process, especially within residential programming? I would argue, I guess, the reason it's so important, I, I think it's kind of a cornerstone, I would say, tool to, for clients to put on their tool belt to help them walk through the myriad of problems that they begin to face in early recovery. Um, I kind of think about mindfulness and think about its antonym of mindlessness, like just kind of not being able to think about what is happening in the here and now and being able to helping, helping clients figure out how to settle in and acknowledge where they are as a key component to the recovery process. Because oftentimes people coming out of a detox setting uh, are either really miserable in thinking about how to end their misery, usually through returning to, to substance misuse, or um, 
they're on what AA calls the pink cloud, which is just feeling like I have four days sober, thank you peaks, and I'm ready to go. I'm just, uh, I know I'm never gonna use again. And so that is certainly an issue. And, and oftentimes, um, you, you mentioned trauma kind of in your intro and lead in there. And um, trauma is a pretty, it's a stuck emotion, if you will, and, and it is difficult to resolve. And it requires an element of learning how to be mindful, learning how to deal with one's trauma from the present, because trauma tends to be kind of stuck in the past. And so teaching and learning mindfulness is a key component to learning how the process of dealing with trauma, even before you begin to actually try to deal with your trauma. And so it's an early recovery skill that I, that I think is critically important. And now I'll kick it over to the, just the COO of Peaks Clinic. <laughs> One of these days we'll be friends. So yeah, yeah. good luck. <laughs> um, so mindfulness and early recovery. Um, I think that there is an element of uh, recovery that often is kind of overlooked, as particularly in the residential level, um, which is these sort of pragmatic skills about um, that help the uh, that actually help the brain to start to restructure itself. And those are done through mindfulness-based tactics, right? Um, and they can be as simple as uh, a very uh, a, a rigid schedule, right? Or a predictable routine, or um, engaging in um, integrating fitness and, um, and meditation in, uh, like very intentionally into the program, not as some sort of um, like optional like experience that people can have, but actually it's part of the programming itself. Because like Jason was saying, you know, in order to really do the work that you need to do to, to, to be successful in recovery, you have to be present. You, know, you have to be here right now and in this moment. And in order, I think so many of us, even people who aren't in recovery, live sort of outside of this moment. And so they are really unable to kind of nail down the things that they need to, to work through. Because you're always sort of working around issues rather than actually working through those issues. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, that's, those are my thoughts. I'm going to stop there. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I, I wanted to add to what you, say, what you said, too, because I do think, you know, from a clinician perspective or even from a, a maybe more of a marketing lens, too, like, it, it's tempting to kind of see a huge cluster of problems and feel like we need to, tackle all of these yeah. things and to make our uh, residential program 30 or 45 day program be able to treat this huge uh, bundle well, of issues basically yeah, yeah. this huge thing and really um, that's almost a mindless approach to, to doing residential <laughs> right, care yeah. in this meta way um, and being able to boil it down to, to taking more bite-sized uh, methodical mindful approach to treatment planning through a residential program um, really allows for the stabilization to occur and to address some specific things in a clear way, but really to begin to build um, a system for clients, a, a path for clients to know that right. they can walk, regardless of the disruption that comes right. in, whether it's a trigger or depression is coming back or my anxiety is spiking or 
my spouse won't stop yelling at me. I can I know how to walk through a disruption and and self-soothe on the other side of that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you cannot really walk the path of recovery if you're not grounded, you know. And so grounding becomes what the primary focus is. It's not just immediately diving into the, this bundle of issues and trying to untangle them. It's about, first, let's just make sure you're here. Let's just make sure you're present. And let's make sure that you, you know what your emotions are, that you know how to actually uh, navigate those emotions to a degree that's going to allow you to work through these issues, rather than just kind of throw it all out there and um, say go. You know, It doesn't necessarily if you don't know how to ground yourself, then no matter how much work you do in the residential program in the 30 to 45 days, as soon as you walk off that campus, you're, you've, you're at risk. Yeah. Because there's no way to learn how to, to know how to walk uh, and live a sober life with presence and intention. Yeah. So. Yeah, and it seems to be the case that there's this brute force, I'm gonna do it, right? When we think about the pink cloud, um, component of it, but, and I don't know where that's come from, where that we have to embrace this soul sort of autonomy that I got to do it on my own, I just have to make a, a decision, a forceful decision not to use anymore. Um, but the science of addiction is quite clear that the physiological brain state that we, or addiction is just that, a physiological brain state that is exist and is, um, depending on for how long you've been using drugs and alcohol, it is now permanent. Mm -hmm. right within the brain as a craving state and so when we're on the pink cloud we're not triggered we're not associating you know yeah. um, any potential future opportunities that might disrupt the present moment that we're in but I think it's really important to remind them how quickly they can be disrupted um, in any given process so you know within residential models such as ours I think it's really important to go about that and kind of you know poke the bear a little bit to, to, to yeah. get them to see that they aren't so grounded and that things aren't on this, you know, pink cloud. And so within, you know, the limited time frame that we have, whether, through it's a, whether it's through a mindfulness lens or so forth, um, what are the unique ways we can have families sort of engaged with what it looks like in an addiction treatment center for how we are sort of um, poking the bear, getting them a little elevated, re-bringing them back down to the ground, escalating the situation a little bit again, bringing them down, because we're really not doing our job if we aren't creating or exposing that tension that naturally uh, exists in their lives. So as I generally do, ask a question followed by a, a, a statement. A statement. <laughs> Another question. In that regard, the question is, how do, we, how do we break through that pink cloud and do it in a way that allows them to reground on the other side without totally disrupting uh, their progress? Well, you know, interestingly, the pink cloud itself, I mean, first of all, labeling it, being able to say, hey, this is a predictable part of a recovery journey, and I'm not trying to be the bearer of bad news, but it doesn't last. It doesn't last, yeah. Um, and I always, A, I align with people. Like, I fully believe that's your intention. Like, it, that statement feels very true inside of you that you will never use it again, and I want to acknowledge that. Um, but you also, you know, and then I just describe either, you know, and I can intend to lift my car with my full intention, uh, and I won't be able to. You know, just, just saying that, that there's, translating that intention into a how, I think is the key part. Um, acknowledging that that will take work or a process. And, and, and if that doesn't work, I'll, I, I have another metaphor I'll use is, you know, you can say you're gonna save $10,000, 
or you're going to say, I'm going to do what it takes to save $10,000. And I'll, I'll go with the, I'll do what it takes to save $10,000. Like acknowledge that there's a process and it's going to take some work and some planning and, um, and you may run into some difficulties along the way. That, that usually helps people kind of begin to round a corner to say, okay, I, and then I say ride it too, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad you it. have that, in, yeah. that intention. Let's use that as momentum to kind of walk through this. Let's get as far as you can while you're feeling like you're never going to use again. Uh, because that is kind of some fertile ground to get some momentum um, to build some of the tools that we had talked about when, they're, when maybe some of those other baggage or whatever is with them uh, isn't weighing them down at that moment. We can use that as momentum yeah. in a path. What are your thoughts, well, Dr. My thoughts, Nicholson? So, I have actually been called the pink cloud popper because I have a yeah. pretty dry, first of all, sense of humor. And my approach to treatment is rather disruptive. So I... And I, like Jason said, I enjoy seeing, seeing the pink cloud because it, there's a moment there to agitate, because there's a moment there to bring a dose of reality mm -hmm. and recognizing that, hey, so the reason why you feel like this, this experience is coming from, this is the first time you've been sober for multiple days and feel good physically in I don't know how long. And you pair that with uh, a safe environment full of people who are completely dedicated to your well-being. You are completely safe. There are no... Um, there's no trigger as far as the sort of external world is concerned. And so that immediately forms a bubble. And the reality is that in about two weeks, you're gonna try to leave treatment because you're gonna be so frustrated and it's gonna, that you're actually gonna wanna get the heck out of here. And there's this disbelief, obviously, I think when, when people hear that, but the reality is that it's, uh, treatment goes in cycles. You know, it really does. Like there are times when you feel really grounded in the process and there are times when you feel like this is so heavy, I want to get the heck out of here. And that's what it should feel like. Like that's what the, that sort of tension brings about because you need to be able to navigate both of those parts. You need to be able to navigate when you feel good and then you need to be able to navigate when you're ready to run. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, even as something as basic as our curriculum is designed like that, it's designed to to really sort of like escalate somebody and then ground them and then escalate them with the topics of the day and then ground them again. Um, so you go through this process and I think that it's, again, I totally agree with Jason that it is fertile ground, it's fertile territory and also it's not real and it's gonna go away pretty fast, so yeah. Yeah, and sorry, sorry to talk, burst your bubble, so to speak. <laughs> so yeah, but it, that's not gonna last. If you got more to say, jump in. Well, I, I just was going to, one of Clinton's famous quotes is, uh, yeah, that's not a thing. <laughs> yeah. Like he, yeah, it's like a, his line. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's not a thing. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, so whatever this whole, like, I'm never going to use again. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That, that's a moment of like, yeah, that's not a thing. Like yep. you, you would use within minutes if you left here right now. Right. Like you feel really good in this moment, which is great. Also, it's not going to last, yeah. you know, because you're an addict. And because, like you said, Brandon, like there is, physiologically, that person is still in the craving state. Mm -hmm. Like they have not worked through the neurological processes necessary in order to even begin to have the skills uh, to, to manage triggers and cope with these sort of um, uh, external uh, agitators that as soon as they walk out of treatment, they're going to experience. Right, right. And uh, the verbiage that's coming up for me, I think we talked about a pre-episode here, but uh, distress tolerance mm -hmm. is really the name of the game. And, it, and it's, at least my non-clinical experience, you know, in surveying the patient demographic that comes through our program, that 
it seems like they're, they're quick to take the things that cause stress in their lives and tear them down. It might be, you know, it might be a marriage, it might be the place they live, it might be the place they work. In, in a lot of instances, it's almost everything it feels like that is causing you know, distress yeah. in their lives um, in that regard. And I guess, you know, sort of as we kind of go down the, the end of this episode here, um, how, how is it, I mean, it, I, I don't get to be in the group settings, I don't get to be in the individual sessions, but how are we allowing that, how are we giving them that space to really hone in on, say, it's a marital issue that they wish to tear down? Um, how are we bringing them into that? Because they're escalating within it. And kind of what does the process, I suppose, look like for increasing that distress tolerance and that sort of wave that you're bringing them through? Like, what buttons it up, you know? In a... Yeah, I'm the unbuttoner, yeah. and Clinton is the buttoner. <laughs> okay, so it's yeah. a team um, effort. Yeah, it is. <clears throat> I mean, you know, to me, and I'm going to let Clinton really take that question directly, but. You know, the alternative is distress avoidance, right? Like, just right. try to shrink your life so small. Uh, if, if, if you can't use substances, shrink your life so small to be as limiting in uh, distress as possible. Um, and so, you know, it, really, Clint and I, when, when we sat and began planning out some of the curriculum, um, we really, I really thought through a lot of the unbuttoning, like creating the distress. and and beginning to excavate some of the things that people are avoiding or want to avoid or getting to some of the causal issues uh, leading to the substance use. Um, and then really relied on Clinton and his kind of expertise and bent to say, okay, and this is how I can see buttoning that up. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna let him kind of take that, the how question for that. The how, well, uh, like I said earlier, I think recovery is actually really quite pragmatic. It's about um, being able to. So easy. Yeah, it's super it's easy. Super like, you just got to do it. You yeah, know? Like, I don't know what the big do deal is. Do the things. Uh, I think that there is a, a practical quality to it, though. It's not magical. Like, it's actually work. You know, and so in my experience, the way to ground people is through work. Like, you actually have to do some work. You have to live what, you have to experience life in recovery, which is very basic. It's very normal. It doesn't feel exciting. It doesn't actually feel, um, there's no thrill about it. You know, it's act, and uh, so that's one way is to actually really start engaging people in just this sort of basic life of recovery and, and really reinforcing that, um, you know, a day in the life of recovery is just a day doing laundry. You know, it's a day mowing the lawn. It's a day going to the grocery store, you know, and being able to sort of reiterate that and allow them to experience that in a way that is actually fulfilling. Um, the, other hand, the other way to do that is somatically, actually getting into the body and really um, grounding people either through yoga or through other various exercises, through um, actually going on hikes. You know, th there's, a, there's a way to sort of ground the mind through the body that uh, we also lean into pretty heavily. Um, because th the reality is like you're, I mean, I don't know if, I personally believe in re resolution to trauma. I don't know if I actually believe that that's a thing, but I do believe that you can, re you can work around your trauma. You can recognize that it's there, see how it's impacting you in your day-to-day -day life, and then change that impact. You know, um, 
very easily and very pragmatically, of course. Yeah. We can flag hours. that for another episode, yeah. by the way, because that may be an Clint, interesting conversation. Clint just segued into another episode. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, sure does. Super um, easy, guys. Yeah. <laughs> well, and in, in, in bringing this uh, um, to its uh, natural end here, I, I, all of this resonates with me. I sit in front of clients you know, a lot of times, and they say stuff about how this is boring. And I think this industry has done a major misstep from those attitudes of boring because recovery is boring. <laughs> just living sometimes, yeah. you're gonna find yourself yeah. in absolute boredom. It's just a part of life. And when you get to our websites, we say we do all these things because we're trying to sort of do a dance at the end of the day, but the dance is too big and it should be narrowed and it should be focused. And so over the course of coming episodes, certainly we wanna to continue to bring forward that um, narrow focus and how it can be um, helpful to individuals engaged in early recovery processes and then expand from there where we can start doing a greater dance beyond the walls of a residential addiction treatment facility. So um, speaking of boredom, if you're bored today, this afternoon, check us out on Spotify, the iTunes store. Um, wow. Find us somewhere. Go to our website. Yeah. Uh, our, the podcast. our program is not boring, by the way. Like and that is not a thing. Let's just throw that out there. That it's very exciting, yeah. full of thrills and Riveting. wow. Yeah, it's pretty. And it's pretty uh, email us questions, <laughs> comments, ideas, concerns at findingpeaks at peaksrecovery.com. Um, send us your comments and social media and so forth. We'd love to build upon questions and ideas that you guys have. Thank you so much again for joining us. Until next time.